Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to be talking about Pastor James Coates out in Alberta, the overreach of our government and the relationship of the church and the state. By now, many of you have probably heard about Grace Life Pastor James Coates, who has been arrested uh, for holding church services at his church building. And I'm going to just pass it over to you, Aaron. What are your thoughts on this situation? Well, thanks, Chris. Um, This is um, obviously of of grave concern to those of us that have been advocating for, um, frankly, for the state to stay out of church life. Uh, we don't have any problem, of course, with the church uh, being under the authority of the church or the state, rather, in matters of you know criminal justice. So, for example, if a church is committing a criminal act, um, no pastor out there that has his head screwed on is going to say, ah, oh, the state has no business in that. But the state does have no business in closing churches down during a pandemic or a war. It's an overreach of their authority. And one of the illustrations that comes to mind is the actions of Julius Caesar. You know, back in 49 BC, Julius Caesar was a power-hungry general responsible to oversee the 13th Legion, and he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted political office. He wanted power. So he maneuvered behind the scenes. It didn't get his way. So eventually, and this is a course, during the period of time when Rome was still a republic, not an empire, but a republic. He crossed the red line, the Rubicon River, a little river that runs uh, through the upper part of Italy. He crossed the Rubicon River, and that was a symbolic act of treason against the people's republic, against Rome. Ultimately, he attacked uh, Rome and uh, drove their defending army away. Uh, declared himself to be dictator of the uh, Roman Empire. And really, it was him that started, you could say, the the Roman Empire, declared himself to be the dictator, Um, you know, had his opponents put to death. Ultimately, he met his demise uh, five years later at the hands of a bunch of irate senators. But the damage was already done. And the Roman Republic, as they knew it, came to an end. And his actions ushered in the Roman Empire. And, you know, it's interesting. Caesar's name was then adopted by other rulers later on. It became almost like, instead of being more like a last name, it became a title to um, communicate or to express or to describe someone that has absolute tyrannical control. Uh, The words Kaiser, you know, in German come from the word Caesar. The word Tsar. Russian come from the word Caesar. So the the actions of this man did not just negatively affect the Roman Republic for five years, but it ultimately had a negative effect on the rest of human history. And students of culture and history should, of course, not get worked up about every minor event that takes place in our country because you know this would really be quite depressing. But we, we are literally witnessing an unprecedented event in Canadian history. Uh, I think 
could be wrong, but I think I was the first pastor, the first individual who was um, informed that he was going to be charged in all of Canada for opening my church back in September, uh, in December. But Pastor Coates is the first pastor to be arrested. And uh, one of my friends who's in communication with his wife uh, told us today that he was um, basically put in jail overnight. I'm not sure if he's still there now. He was given a Bible and that's it because he refused to to agree that he wouldn't open his church again. So as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, Canadian premiers, uh, Canadian politicians, health officials have crossed the Rubicon. They have attacked, knowingly or unknowingly, they have attacked our values as Canadians. They have overstepped their authority Mm-hmm. in the life of the church. And this should cause uh, grave concern for not only thoughtful Christians, but thoughtful Canadians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe touch down on a little bit of that. Like, why should this shock us if we have a proper understanding of government in Canada? Why Why this shocks us? Well, Canadians, like Romans prior to the actions of Julius Caesar— understood that they were governed, not ruled. Of course, in that time, you know, one in five were slaves. They would be under a different set of rules, unfortunately. But Romans prized their freedom, and um, much like Canadians do. You know, there's, there's a government governing you, but not a ruler ruling you. And if you understand Canadian the, the structure of Canadian government, there's there's many things in our governmental structures that are su- supposed to protect us from tyranny. All of those seem to have been erased and set aside because of the overarching narrative of fear. But we have, for example, three branches of government. So the executive branch is separate from the legislative branch, which is separate from the judiciary, the judicial branch. And each of those branches of government have a different role. So we have the you know, in a province, we have the executive branch, which would be the premier and his cabinet that are making high-end decisions, but they're always subject to the legislature, the Ontario legislature. So you have to take your decisions to the legislature so that the people's elected representatives can weigh in on that. And then if there's some sort of a debate or a challenge suggesting that maybe an action's unlawful, that's where the judiciary steps in and does their job. So we have these three branches of government that sort of keep everything uh, in check. Uh, then within, for example, the legislature or uh, parliament, you have generally a, uh, a, a ruling party, you know, Her, Her Majesty's um, government. But they are sort of held to account by Her Majesty's loyal opposition. So it's interesting that while we might at times look at the role of a lesser party, sort of pick where well, you're kind of picking on the majority government, or you're you're picking on the the uh, the Queen's um, government at the moment. That's actually their job to to oppose, to criticize, to critique, to call out. It's a positive thing. It's built into our governmental structures to to make sure that we never fall prey to rulership. That there's checks and balances to government. We also have. A monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, and she's represented federally by the governor general, provincially by lieutenant um, governors, and they they are responsible to 
make sure, they're not just figureheads, they're responsible to make sure that proper procedures are being followed, that the Constitution is being upheld and so forth and so on. And then we have, you know, we have the Canadian Bill of Rights that's rarely ever talked about. I think it was Baker that put that in place back in 1960. Um, that's that's a pretty ironclad Bill of Rights. There's no escape clause. There's uh, the articulation of various freedoms that we have, and it's it's pretty ironclad. But apparently, you know, back in late 70s, early 80s, there was some concern as to whether or not it was provincially binding. You know, it was a federal document, so was it provincially binding? So then we have the char- the Charter of um, of uh, you know rights rights and and freedoms put in place, and those also spell out in a very similar way that the bill does our charter freedoms. Now the the challenging thing about the um, charter, and this is where probably on a certain level actually conflicts with the Bill of Rights, is this notwithstanding clause. So you have all your um, an unalienable rights put in place, but then you have this statement that. You know, maybe they can be taken away if it's demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So, if there's some event, war or plague or whatever it might be, um, the government can sort of sidestep your freedoms if it's demonstrably justified. Now, this is um, this can be a bit of a slippery word, and obviously, legal experts could describe this with you know greater care than I would, but. You know, as I understand it, we we're living in a point in time where our premiers are not justifying in a demonstrable way lockdown measures. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I've said this before in, in a previous podcast that uh, if I want to find out information, like why am I being locked down? Why are my rights being suspended? Like, why are you actually like prove to me why do I have to close my church? Mm-hmm. Why are you saying that? You know, it's it's we we need to lock this guy up. We need to lock Pastor Coates up because he's he's a threat to public health. Well, the onus isn't on me to go peruse the World Health Organization website to you know wait for CBC to publish some new article to call my youth, local health unit to mine data on CDC these kinds of things. The onus is on the government. The onus is on the government to prove to me as a citizen that there is a demonstrably justifiable reason for suspending my civil liberties. Now, we're going to talk in a moment about how I think all of us is sort of a moot point when it comes to the church, but we're not getting that kind of information. It, you know, one of the things that people maybe are not thinking about, we we have just finished Another lockdown in in our area. Of course, it was province wide, but in in Windsor, it, it started on a different date than Toronto, and Toronto's is extended a little beyond ours. Folks, we've been locked down for five of the last eleven months. That is a massive portion of time. Al- almost half of the past year, we've been locked down. Five of the past eleven months, two different lockdowns, and locally. Our health unit still has yet to respond to one single letter or email. Uh, Our premier doesn't provide us with the demonstrably justified evidence to prove this. And so all of these things should be of grave concern for Canadians. And, you know, if you're the kind of person that's like, well, yeah, well, but, 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 um, you know, people are dying and, you know, we're afraid. It doesn't matter what you think or feel. The reality is 
in this regard, the law is the law. The law demands that if you're going to suspend charter freedoms, lock up pastors, these kinds of things, you have to demonstrably justify the absolute necessity of these things. So this should concern us as Christians and as patriots, and um, we can, we need to speak out against it. Again, I think that our officials have crossed the Rubicon. Mm-hmm. That, that's helpful explaining the different levels of government and how that uh, does then very much shock us because of the way it's being uh, handled. Can we speak to the the authority the state does have or doesn't have to close churches? You alluded to that earlier. Could you speak to that a little bit? Canada doesn't have a rule book for the relationship of the church and the state. But we can appeal to various systems and structures in our history that give us clues, maybe maybe clues is too light of a word, evidence that while the state has a, a measure of authority, and I'll explain that momentarily in the life of the church, the state doesn't it just doesn't have, it historically has not had theologically does not have comprehensive authority over the church. It just doesn't. So when you think of the church and the state, obviously the state is composed of people who uh, have been elected to office and represent us through their various institutions and offices. And the church is composed of citizens as well. So as citizens of the state, in our capacity as individual citizens, we're bound to obey the speed limit and pay our taxes and these kinds of things. Um, but when it comes to the, the state as an institution and the church as an institution, the church is not under the state. Uh, the church is not owned by the state. You know, historically, people in Western civilization have understood that there's a separation of church and state. So what does that mean? If, if the church or someone within a church or a local church were to, for example, be committing criminal acts behind closed doors, then they are susceptible to discipline or the justice of the state because the state has been given the sword to maintain justice and civilization. So if there's criminal activity taking place, but we're not talking about criminal activity right now. We're talking about churches that supposedly are violating provincial health orders. And... Uh, Pastor Coates has not been charged, to my understanding, criminally. He's being treated like a criminal. But it's because the the state has this notion, the modern state, uh, ignorant of history, not thinking through the issues, thinks that we're just like some other organization out there. We're just some charity or some group of individuals that are getting together to meet our sentimental needs. There's a few things for us to think about in this regard. So I want to kind of just outline two or three or four um, points that that kind of demonstrate from history the separation of the church and state. So one of the biggies that is rarely discussed is the the topic of taxation. Now I pay taxes. I pay federal taxes, provincial taxes. When I buy and sell, I pay taxes. I pay income taxes and so forth because I'm a citizen of the state. But the church collectively is tax exempt. And the reason for this is because taxation, if you think about it, is a claim to having authority over someone. And historic peoples understood that, for example, if you, if the Canadian government decides to establish an, uh, an embassy in 
Kenya or in Belgium or Russia or wherever they might want to establish one. Uh, that land that that embassy is on is sovereign to the country that runs the ambassadorship. So that would be like kind of like Canadian sovereign territory in Russia, for example. And that property would not be taxable because it would be, or at least it shouldn't be taxable because it's not under the authority of the state within which it's placed. It works collectively and collaboratively. It doesn't seek to bring, um, you know, destruction to the state within which it's placed. If someone in the embassy commits a criminal act, you'd, you'd arrest them. But other than that, they, they, they're they not taxed because they're a foreign embassy. Mm-hmm. Historically, we understood that the reason why churches aren't taxed is because they are Christ's embassy. We're not under the authority of the state. Many Christians in modern churches, when they think of tax-free status, uh, there's a couple of interesting things that we see taking place. The one would be Christians treat it almost as if it's a gift from the government. Oh, what a gift. What a privilege. We haven't paid our tax. We don't have to pay land tax to the, to the state. That's not the reason for it. The government would like you to think so. It, this is a, a gift. And if you don't fill out our forms, you don't do things our way, we're going to take it from you. Again, this is an ignorance of history. This is a rewriting of the rule book. The reason why we don't pay taxes is because we are Christ's embassy. Now, other religions, of course, benefit that from this by by default because you know we want to be fair with other religious groups in Canada. But there's an understanding that there's a while there's um, you know certain functions that the state carries out that the church might participate in. We want to see um, good welfare systems and charitable acts and righteousness and all that. Ontologically, the state is separate from the church. Biblically, we understand this. We are the bride of Christ. The legislature is not the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. We are Christ's presence on earth. We are his embassy. We're not taxed by the state because we're not under the authority of the state. Now, let's suppose the state changes its mind and says, well, too bad we're going to start taxing you because we want to put you under. Well, the state doesn't benefit from that. Because then uh, what, the, what the church agrees to do as a tax-exempt organization is not to play party politics. So the church doesn't become a political party. The church doesn't ask for you know candidate A to speak in their building at their Sunday morning service and exclude all other candidates. Now, it's, it's lawful for any Christian to engage in political activity to speak out against issues. Next week, my wife and I are going to be standing out front of the Metropolitan Hospital speaking out against abortion. It's lawful for us to do that. It's lawful for any Christian to to speak out against things that concern them in society. It's lawful for any Christian to run for office. If I wanted to run for office, I could run for office. I have the freedom to do that. But in terms of our church, we can't say, okay, we're going to have party A come in, speak on a Sunday morning, unless... We also agree to give equal time to party B, party C, party D, you know, party E, whatever. Uh, we don't rent space, to, and we've never done that, by the way, but we could. Um, we wouldn't rent space to a political party at a you know discounted rate and charge a greater fee to others. Like there's a separation of church and state when the state does its job, which is basic to social um, 
uh, maintaining justice in society, the church honors that. This is why we're called to honor the emperor, honor the king. This is why we're called to submit to government in Romans 13. But that's to be understood as submitting to them when it comes to their rightful roles, not submitting to them in every and any area they choose to claim authority over. So I'm not obliged anywhere in scripture to submit to the state if the state says, Aaron Rock, close your church. You cannot minister to people. You cannot preach the gospel. You cannot counsel people. You cannot meet with people for communion. You cannot baptize people because there's a plague going on. You don't have the authority to do that. So, you know, we can talk about whether it's wise for a church to choose to close or not choose to close or how they should respond to the virus. But I want my listeners to understand that's not what we're talking about. Mm. We're not talking about the virus right now. We're talking about matters of authority. And the church is separate from the state. Now, a couple more things that I just want to remind the, the listeners of. The preamble to the charter. The preamble to the charter acknowledges what? The rule of law and the supremacy of God. Those two, by the way, are intimately and inextricably linked. And what we understand by that statement is not the God as you understand him or her, it, or they to be. This is a reference to the Judeo-Christian God, upon which most of our laws, at least the good ones, are built. I was talking to a law enforcement officer recently. He's not even a Christian. I don't think he's ever donned the door of a church. And he's like, yeah, I remember when I was in police college, they talked about the fact that you know, a lot of our laws are based upon the Judeo-Christian system. He's right. So we, even if you're not a Christian and you're, let's say you're just a, you're a Canadian, you're listening to this podcast, what you need to know is that the rights and freedoms and liberties and protections that you enjoy are a result of the past efforts of Christian people and Christian churches promulgating Christian virtues and values and truths that have leaked into and formed the foundation of Canadian law. So these are blessings for us to, you know, not, not just to discard or throw out because they seem to be inconvenient or old-fashioned, um, you know, and if, and if society wants to have a, you know, a conversation about this, they need to have a conversation, but you can't change the rules mid-game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense there. So would you say, it's, obviously you would say it's vital for churches to remain open uh, and actively engaged in ministry, but why would that be? Why, uh, why not just go underground? Why not just do home churches? Uh, what, what use does the institutional church have at this point? Okay, so I think this is a critical question for many people. And, and by the way, let me just back up and make one more comment that comes to mind with regard to the church and the state. Some people have used the argument, well, you know, your church agrees to, um, you know, bind itself to, let's say, the local fire code. So if okay, the fire yeah. code says, you know, you can only have 800 people in the room, then you can only have 800. If the fire code says in that room you can only have 60, you know, you only put 60. And so how can you sort of suggest that, um, you know, you can obey certain laws and others. Okay. I would say the answer to that is fire codes in no way, shape or form are even remotely equatable to lockdowns. So fire codes, common sense, I'm not going to jam people into the walls necessarily in a room because, you know, if there's a fire, the bells go off, you know, people can get hurt. I understand that. 
and we you know we want to concern ourselves with with human life but i would say what what fire codes recognize is what i would call balance and mitigation so we understand that we're it's not like a free for all we put ourselves in a place where we want to balance you know the risk and rewards and if we want more people well we can just build bigger buildings or knock out some walls in a bigger rooms lockdowns are a completely different animal we were like, your church functionally cannot meet, period, period. You cannot baptize anyone. You cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, you, you cannot meet as a congregation. There, there's no balance to that. It's just an absolute either or. And, you know, this is why we have, I, I, I just don't think it's apples to oranges when, you know, that analogy is given. But to speak to your question about the institutional church, um, I mean, I, I grew up in what would be probably considered uh, a, a fairly primitive church experience. So we, we moved around quite a bit as kids for various family reasons. But the earliest church I was in was what we would call like a primitive sort of puritanical kind of church where we, we very much under, understood ourselves to be separate from the world and we didn't want worldly influence sneaking in and all that kind of thing. And we were very closed and exclusive and there was very little um, traffic from the world, right? We didn't get a lot of visitors or people coming in off the streets and whatnot, uh, so forth and so on. Um, and that notion of the church sort of being, a, I'll just call it like a holy huddle, is not uncommon in you know many branches of the Protestant church today. Where we, we almost have this like whimsical um, uh, notion that there's something special about being small and uh, minuscule and, you know, meeting in secret. Or we have in our culture today, you know, many people that are real, they're always down on the mega church, right? Like the mega church is, must be a bad thing. And, Celebrity pastors, if you're well-known, shame on you. You must automatically be a compromiser. And true, there's there's compromise in the megachurch and compromise among celebrity pastors. There is everywhere. Those are the ones that just happen to get reported. So we have the rise of the house church movement. And I get it. I'm not, I'm not throwing the house church movement under the bus, but there's, there's something tantalizing about this notion of a group of Christian brothers and sisters just meeting in a basement. And we don't have to worry about paying for a building. And it's just... You know, you and I and Jesus hanging out, right? Sort of this exclusive type uh, vision of the ch of of the church, and one of the the things that are often pointed to when people advocate for you know, small church, house church, sort of out of the way church is well, the early church did that. The early church met in homes; they went from home home to home. Do we understand why they met in homes? <laughs> because they were chased out of the synagogue. Because they were chased out of the public square. The reason why they met in homes, and generally it was the homes of rich people that had enough capacity to maybe stuff 30 or 40 people or whatever might have been in them, wasn't because they wanted to do that. You know, these are Jewish people for the most part that were converted out of Judaism. They would have much rather have met in the synagogue. And Paul spends his ministry in the synagogue. He's debating and, you know, reading and, you know, having these um, – you know, gr great ministry experiences. There's nothing awesome or idyllic about being forced to meet in your home. They they had to do it out of necessity. 
it's not the prescribed norm. It's the described reality of their pitiful circumstances. Now, did God work mightily? Yes, he worked mightily in the house churches. Were people saved? Yes, of course they were saved. Many wonderful things can take place in a house church, just like many great things can take place in a small little country church where there's very few people, but most of the population's there. We're not diminishing that in any way, shape, or form. But to suggest that this is what we should strive for, that when you know when pressure comes, ah, we'll just close our buildings down, give them away, give them up, and flee to our homes. That somehow that's you know super awesome. It's not. We also have people often pointing to the church in China. Oh, the church in China is just exploding. People are meeting in homes. Look, I've taught in the church of China in, in China on two occasions. I traveled across the world and spent a, a week or two at a time training and meeting with leaders in what they call the underground church. Some wonderful believers who, yes, are, are, are making a difference for Christ. But if you ask them, hey, is this super awesome? You, know, you hope that you, know, you can meet your, your homes for the rest of your lives? Absolutely not. They, they, they don't want to be uh, meeting in their homes. They want to get out and engage with their culture. They want to be able able to build structures so they can fit hundreds and hundreds of disciples that can worship God and make a difference. They want to start Christian schools. In fact, one of the things that goes underreported is that in many of the the underground churches in China, there's rampant heresy because you don't have training. You don't have the seminaries as institutions. The seminaries can be good or bad, I understand it, but you don't have these opportunities. So I I think people are a little bit naive to the blessings of the – institutional church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So some other things we want to think about, what what are you hoping to see now that, you know, in Windsor anyways, churches have reopened uh, to a limited capacity, but what are you hoping yeah. to see going forward? Well, I would like to see people fall in love again with the institutional church, for sure. Um, when I say the institutional church, I mean the church publicly displaying itself in culture. So generally, that's going to involve having an address, uh, having a place where you're a public witness, where people can come together publicly and gather and be taught and um, encouraged and counseled and you know, disciplined and blessed and their needs are met and all that. A place where you know we can uh, equip people to go out and feed the poor and minister in the hospitals. We just had a wonderful ministry initiative the last few weeks, meeting the needs of people in hospital-type settings. Um, We want to be able to do that. I want people to understand, like, this is precious and special. Let's not take for granted the the institutional church, the church publicly expressing itself in culture. I'm also a fan of home churches as an addendum to that. Uh, You know, we have a robust network of small groups in our church, and, um, you know, we, we encourage that. We want people to meet together and bless one another and, um, you know, enjoy those intimate adventurous relationships that Christ has called us to. But um, more, very practically, um, I, I would say there's, a, there's two or three things that come to mind. The one would be, I just, I, I think our people are so missing the beauty and the joy of just corporate collective worship. Mm-hmm. For non-church people, that might sound like not a particularly important thing, but this is a lifeline for all of us as Christians. 
there is something very special and precious about being able to meet in a common place with God's people and hear the word of God proclaimed and and sense the spirit of God moving among the flock and just changing lives and the, the, the lights are turning on in people's minds and hearts and they're they're being instructed as to how to conduct themselves in marriage and family and relationships and community and in their relationship with, to the culture, knowing that God is pleased that we have taken time to actually extol his name and his attributes and love on him and sacrifice our time, talents, and treasures for him. That's a beautiful thing. But I, I also would say that I, I just, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that many people in our church are really suffering because we're not built for isolation. And I'm very concerned about some of our new believers that have fallen away from the faith or are on the verge of doing that. That's hap- happened in our church. I want to call them back together so we can love on them and care for them and commune with them. I really believe that. I'm not blowing smoke. I I really, I would say I have a desperation. I don't think that's too strong of a word. I have a desperation to meet the needs of the desperate. And there are many, many, many in our church. And as a seasoned Christian, you know, having walked with God for over 40 years, I take that responsibility very seriously. I take my responsibility as a pastor very seriously. And I must say, um, you know, it's, it's perplexing to me and disappointing when others would accuse me of wanting to bring harm to people by opening my church. That is the farthest thing from the truth you could possibly imagine. I want to see people blessed and encouraged and built up. I also want to see our people equipped, you know, and green-lighted to engage with culture. Um, We are a church that is more involved in the community than people probably know. Uh, We don't brag on it. You know, we don't publish reports in the Windsor Star. Hey, this is what we are doing. You know, here here we are over here. But there is a, a boatload of practical ministry that takes place every year in our, um, you know, country, uh, in our province, in our, especially in our city as a result of the ministry of Harvest Bible Church. And we want to continue to see that happen. And we also want to um, be a, a, a voice in culture. You know, we want our culture to know we're not messing around here. We take our civil liberties very seriously because they are part and parcel of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We want people to be healed physically, and we want people to be healed spiritually. Your local hospital can help you be healed physically, but it's your church that will help you to be healed spiritually. The church is a spiritual hospital, and those that do not love Christ might poo-poo that and so forth, but we take that very seriously, and we are um, definitely uh, seeking to be salt and light for Jesus in our community and and be good heralds and ambassadors of our true and living King. Awesome. Well, there's some obviously very discouraging news, uh, obviously, with Pastor James Coates and what's going on there. And even though we do have some hope churches are reopening, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this initiative we're doing, this prayer and fasting initiative that our church is doing and we're calling other churches to do? I think that might be helpful for some of the leaders to hear about. 
you know, I, I'm a bit of a doer. I, I like to get things done. And, you know, that, that might be probably, probably has a lot to do with my personality and my, my upbringing. I like to solve problems. And so weighing into all these challenges that our church is experiencing, my, my first response, and I'll just be honest, is to go into solution mode. How do I fix this, right? So you write the letters, you get the petitions going, and you try to engage with culture. But we also need to understand that over and above, not underneath, but over and above all of that is our Lord. And we have access to him through prayer. I'm going to be preaching on that at our Wednesday evening service tonight. We have access to him through prayer. And this is a unique blessing that we have. We can pray to the Father in Jesus' name, the Jesus who accomplished so much for us and dying for our sins and being the propitiatory sacrifice for us and atoning for our unrighteousness and being punished in our for, for, for our sins and trespasses. This is a wonderful thing. And so the leaders of our church and several other churches have earmarked, and of course we should be praying without ceasing. This is one of our core values, but have earmarked uh, the week of February the 28th uh, through to, I believe it's March the 6th, as a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, we're calling our uh, churches to a week of sacred assembly. However that works itself out in your church, we'd certainly love to invite people from other churches to participate, and we already know that many are. I have a friend in Romania that's going to be participating along with us, praying for for his country. So we have several initiatives that week. Um, you know, we're dividing up the whole week into you know one hour increments, and we want someone to be here, maybe a few people to be here every hour of every day, twenty four hours a day, praying for our church and just calling about a, calling upon the Lord to really bless us and move in our church and to move in our nation. We're going to have a. Uh, opportunities for a collective worship and prayer and then a prayer walk and these sorts of things. And we would love to see uh, others in our um, extended spiritual family do the same. And then fasting, you know, fasting is, is pretty interesting. The world talks a lot about dieting. <laughs> I got to lose a few pounds. Right. And, and I do actually coming out of a lockdown and especially being that we had, you know, fat Tuesday yesterday, I got to lose some weight, man. And um, many of us probably, are feeling the same thing. You know, we're, we put on a few extra pounds, we need to get rid of it. But fasting is, there's many, there's many reasons in scripture for fasting. It might be a good idea to do a bot podcast on that now that I'm thinking about it at some point. But what, as I envision fasting, one of the things that I'm aware of is that I'm, I'm a spiritual man and that God has regenerated me and made me alive in Christ, but I'm also a physical being. And my physicality is a blessing, but it can also be a bit of a curse because I'm a fallen man. And my fleshly appetites uh, often get in the way of and speak louder than my spiritual man. And I think one of the things that fasting does, when, we, when we're, we're being controlled by the flesh, and the flesh is kind of driving our, uh, you know, our, our anger or our appetite for food, which is often just a medication, right, to... Um, sort of deny certain pains or anxieties we have. When we deny our our physical body food, we're essentially saying, and, 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 uh, and I don't want to sound too harsh here, but we're essentially saying to our physical bodies, hey, you know what? Sit down and be quiet. Stop it. I'm sick of you calling the shots. I'm sick of you luring me toward the sin of gluttony. 
or this the sin of unrighteous anger or the sin of sexual temptation or the sin of materialism um the, the sins of the flesh can destroy the spiritual man so quickly mm-hmm. so what fasting does and i don't want to be i don't want to sound dualistic here and like totally separate the spiritual from the physical but it it's 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 a means of fanning the flame of our our spiritual lives our light and sort of um pushing our flesh aside and reminding it that it is not in charge it is not control, in control it doesn't call the shots when we when we then f- refrain from food or drink for periods of time and our our bodies are crying out to be fed and we choose not to feed them for periods of time they they will cry and bawl and hiss and spit like a small child that doesn't want to go to bed but eventually they will submit and they will be silenced and quieted and it's in that quiet place that i think the holy spirit manifests his presence in an extra special way and we are reminded that we are spiritual beings and that we are we have an uh, an intimate and an adventurous relationship with god so it's a beautiful thing for us to for periods of time enter into um festivals or periods of fasting and prayer in order that we might position ourselves to see God move but also to call upon God to act and and then at the same time discipline ourselves to remind ourselves that we don't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord this is a lesson that i think our um uh culture needs to think a lot about because even this fixation on viral control even among Christians is actually a display that they've lost sight of their wholer being that we're spiritual beings how many times have i said it we're not just biotic beings we're spiritual beings and i'm sorry but i would rather see Christians die of the virus but flourish spiritually and see many many other people come to faith in Jesus Christ than to say nope the bottom line goal is we can't have anybody die of the virus at all because the most important thing in all of the world is a long and healthy life no it's not it's not the most important thing um the most important thing is a living vibrant regenerated relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ whether you live to your 30 or 130 that's the most important thing we're in the gospel business we want to see people's lives changed so the church must remain open the people of god must remain submissive to the king the people of god must resist tyranny the people of god must resist a government that is saying you're not essential you shouldn't be open you should be closed it's a loving thing to do these are all lies the church of god should resist these things and do its job and be christ's vibrant and abundant and wonderful um uh, embassy on earth to the glory of the king awesome well we encourage all our listeners continue to be in prayer for pastor james coats and if your church is interested to join us in a week of prayer and fasting for our nation 
a call to a sacred assembly. You can find more information about that at our Facebook page, Harvest Bible Church. We'd also ask that you would consider if you are looking for more information about the relationship of church and state, there's a website called the Niagara Declaration. If you type in niagaradeclaration.com, you will see that there. You can also subscribe for articles from our sister site, Pursuit of Glory, which would be a great place for you to get good resources that you can equip yourself with. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast. Please like and subscribe and share this podcast widely so that many people can be blessed by it. We'll look forward to uh, chatting with you again next week.